Our second message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Life's Foes and God's Peace. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today on God's beautiful Sabbath day. And uh, as was mentioned, as you can see, the title of this message today is Life's Foes and God's Peace. Now, I think that many of us can probably uh, easily see and understand that we, we do have a lot of foes in life. We have a lot of things going on. And if you were watching maybe the news, maybe you read the newspaper, uh, you're keeping up with current events, uh, you're going to learn really fast that this world is not very full of God's peace. I mean, we can pretty much just go across the grove from country to country. And uh, as I was thinking about what to speak about this week, I couldn't help but just continually think, you know, I, I, personally in my life I had a lot of things going on. I, I, you know, I I'm, I'm, uh, know some friends that are dealing with some situations in their life that is uh, very stressful and uh, causes them a lot of anxiety. And I just started thinking about, you know, all the different things that's just going on in this world. This, this noise is continually. I mean, we can go from, you know, starting back in the wintertime with the Russian and Ukrainian situation. And how that's just, it's just a mess. And it's just involves so many different countries and so many different things going on with this continual fighting and this acquisition of land. And this, this, this greed of man that's just demonstrated and exemplified in all of it. I mean, even to the point where just this summer, I mean, a... Uh, uh, a full-fledged jumbo airplane gets missile and bombed out of the sky. I mean, you, you just kind of imagine, I mean, what kind of world we live in when we are actually, human beings are blowing other human beings out of the sky. And then the aftermath of that, if you kept up with anything that was going on, and what I'm referring to is obviously that uh, Malaysian air flight that was leaving, I believe, from the Netherlands to... Uh, back to, uh, I don't know if it was Malaysia, if it was back to somewhere there in the, the southern, e southern Asian region of the world. Basically, it was blown out of the sky because it was maybe thought of as being maybe a Ukrainian airplane, a cargo plane of some sort. And then after it happened, if you kept up with it, basically you saw all the different fighting, people fighting over the jurisdiction of who's, you know, who has the ability to uh, do the detective work, you know, do the investigation on this situation. And it's just continual fighting on and on and on. And then we move over to the, the Middle East, and we know what's going on there with Israel and the things that Israel is dealing with, uh, with the Palestinians and with the uh, terrorist governmental group that runs that country there, uh, what we call Gaza or the Palestinians, Hamas, and just, just the absolute needless bombing and killing that's taking place. I mean, I mean and, and I want to couch this as, as not seeming like I am not being sympathetic towards innocent Palestinian women and children and, and, and individuals, because I am. Because if you, you go and live in Israel and you live in Jerusalem, your day might be consistent of maybe going to the grocery store and trying to live a normal life and then all of a sudden hearing a siren go off and having to run and get in some sort of shelter because you are being bombed. Stressful. Something that we living in America mostly, for the most part, do not deal with. And then, obviously, we know that Israel has a defense mechanism that is very capable of diffusing these attacks by Gaza and, and, and we know that the Palestinians and Israel you know, defending itself and striking back and obviously the government that's there in Gaza uh, and the things that they do of not letting their citizens know everything that's going on and then this, these innocent lives being killed because of that, women and children. So we see that there's a lot of innocent people being killed in that region of the world. Very stressful world we live in. Very the opposite of what we think about uh, uh, or the images that come to our mind when we think about God's peace. And then that doesn't even mention the other Middle Eastern conflict going on with Iraq and with that mess and with just the absolute, probably one of the world's most militant fundamental Islamic groups the world's ever seen. 
uh, just taking people's lives in the most grotesque uh, and the most evil way conceived to the point where people are even, I don't know how true this is, some people are even deciding to take their own lives for the purpose of not being captured by this fundamental group. And I saw a video just this past week and I wasn't able to verify it uh, of people being just like they were cattle, like they were animals. You know, like, you, like I was looking at the Tyson farm uh, and that manufacturer over there that just has thousands and thousands of animals that they're just slaughtering, killing people like, like they are animals. And then we can come to our country, and it's a little different, but there's still situations going on where there's just, let's just be honest, conflict. I mean, we could just consider what's been going on recently in just the past few weeks with what's going on with just a state over to us in Missouri, and with Ferguson, Missouri, and all that mess that's going on there. I mean, this is a world that we're living in where there's just so much conflict. You know, God's peace doesn't seem to be encapsulating the world. And it doesn't seem like that because it's not. And we know a lot of people, it's just this human nature, this struggle that we have with each other. But then I want to think about us as individuals. And we can go all around the world, and we can look at all the things that are going on, but what about us as individuals? And I know that sometimes it feels strange to be trying to consider what we might think is just a kind of a little problem in comparison to some of these big things that are going on throughout the world. Let's just think about that. Maybe some of the things that we're struggling with personally. I mean, I just picked up the bulletin a minute ago, and we just had the prayer request, and we can see really quickly there's a lot of people that are dealing with a lot of things. There's a lot of people that are dealing with struggles that, you know, I've never had to deal with personally. Maybe you've never had to deal with personally. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's the death of, death of a lost one or illness or disease. Uh, maybe it's just spiritual oppression that's going on in their life. We don't know. But all of us, we face, we live in this world. We're in this thing we call the human condition. We have this nature about us that just wants to kind of, you know, war with each other. And then, you know, we also have a spiritual round that tries to keep us down, and, and we, we have a lot of spiritual oppression we have to deal with. So all of this is the opposite of what we usually think about when we think about God's peace. And the words that I think about as I was coming up with this introduction was, was stress. I mean, we can just think about that. I mean, we, worries, anxieties. This is a chronic human problem. It's so embedded in our nature. You know, it's so you know, a part of our nature to, to, to get wrapped up in things, to worry about things, to have, you know, such worries that it, it creates anxieties in us that where we almost just come apart, come apart under, underneath and we're not even able to do anything. We're almost like paralyzed. And that's where I want to start today is in Matthew, the sixth chapter, because Jesus had something to say about worries. He had something to say about anxieties, about stress. A little bit different in the way that we just kind of introduced it. But nevertheless, I think that we can kind of use this as a springboard to what we're going to deal with today. And looking to God's peace. And looking for a defense against the foes that life tries to throw at us. Let's look at Matthew the 6th chapter in verse 25. Matthew 6 verse 25. Jesus, the end of a sermon on the mount. Uh, he's dealing with, you know, all of these different things that he's talking about. Just before this, he was talking about, you know, don't, don't store up treasures on earth. Don't, you know, don't worry about all these human things. All these things that you're trying to accumulate, like the Gentiles, all the unbelievers. You know, all that stuff, it's going to go away at some point. It's just going to, you know, deteriorate. It's not eternal. But rather, focus on the heavenly tre treasures. And Jesus says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which, is, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, 
will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And this is a passage that many of us have went to many times. We're familiar with it. And basically, Jesus is just saying, look, quit fretting. Don't worry. God will take care of you. At a very basic level, Jesus is trying to tell those who are listening, God is going to take care of you. And he brings out all the basic things in life. The things that, you know, are so simple but are very important. I mean, we need them to survive. We need them to, to continue on. He talks about food, about what we drink, our clothing. And in these days, you know, this period of time in history, a lot of people didn't have a lot of physical possessions. A lot of people just tried to survive from one year to the next. You know, the ancient Middle Eastern or ancient Near East, you know, that area we call Mesopotamia that wraps down and goes down to Egypt, we call that the Fertile Crescent. And a lot of people kind of huddled around that area because of two things. Number one, the rivers that were around there, and two, those rivers flooding and bringing upon the land something known as silt, and once those rivers would recede back, it would leave nice and lush land to farm on. And so because of that, a lot of these people, not just this region of the world, others though, but a lot of people started to attaching deification to these different environmental elements in life. That's why we hear, you know, in ancient Egypt, you know, the, the gift of the Nile. They looked at the, the Nile as being, you know, there being a, a god of the Nile, uh, being a rain god, being a sun god. All of these different things that were needed in order to survive, in order for a person to have nice land to farm on, to have luscious crops grow. And we also see this is why a lot of times in this day and age people would fret because it's not like, you know, they could just go to a store and buy the natural things that they needed to survive. But Jesus is talking about these basic things and he's using the arguments from nature. Really simple arguments. Really simple. Jesus is actually employing a common idiomatic expression that basically says that if this is true, then something that's even greater than that is going to even be even more true. For instance, Jesus says, the birds of the air. Look, God feeds them. They don't go out and farm. They don't go out and gather crops and, you know, to, you know, and, and go and harvest the land and putting, put, put them and store them up in, in, in barns. But God still feeds them. And Jesus is basically saying, look, you're humans. Aren't you more valuable than they? Of course. Genesis, the first chapter, verse 27, says that men and women, humans, were created in the image of God. The only creature of God that's created in His image is mankind. And God takes care of all of His creation. And of course, if He takes care of even something as small as a bird, He's going to take care of humans who have more value than even they. He also talks about the lilies of the field. We know God, you know, obviously, that's a typical expression throughout the Bible, lilies of the field, you know, when we look at grass, we look at, you know, wild flowers, a lot of times in the Bible, that part of the environment is likened to the frailty of human beings. How easy it is for those things to be today and tomorrow, they're just cast into the fire. Grass is nothing more, a lot of times, especially in this part of the world, because wood was not something that there was just an abundance of, so grass was very important and it would dry out and people would use it for fire, fire fuel. And so Jesus is saying, look, God even provides for fuel that's for, you know, fire fuel. He's going to provide for you. So he's using this really basic illustration, this, this argumentation that seems so simple from nature. I just want to stop here. Let's just think about this. I mean, Jesus is talking about the basic things in life. We obviously, you know, we have a basic need for food, for clothing, for water. And people would stress about those things. And today, sometimes we stress about those things. Maybe we lost our job. Maybe, you know, we don't make enough to make ends meet. Maybe there's pressures uh, on us that is making it difficult for us to make all of our payments or, all, you know, make all of our financial obligations. And we still have some of these basic stresses in life. You know, an interesting thing, just talking about, 
you know, how all of us have different stresses. This goes for people that are pretty much of every age group. They're different, but we all have, you know, different st stresses. And I, I was reading a manuscript of a, I had a professor in college who was a minister, and he, uh, this was a ministry class, and he actually uh, gave a message, and a lot of times he would use these different quotes. And one of the quotes he used when he was talking about stress one time in one of his messages was a quote by someone I, I couldn't actually track down the quote who, you know, it's not original to me, it's to someone else. I don't even think it's original to him, but I thought it was very profound because I thought it was funny but interesting and, and true because it looks through all the different things that human beings go through. And it says that everybody worries at some levels at different times of life. At four, you worry about darkness. At 14, you worry about acceptance. At 24, you worry about career and marriage. At 34, you worry about opportunity. At 44, you worry about life offering more. At 54, you worry about career change. At 64, you worry about filling days. At 74, you worry about a lack of days. At 84, you worry about the length of days. At 94, you worry that you've worried your life away. And so it's true. We, I mean, we can think back. I mean, all the different levels or all the different situations we went out through our life at different ages. I mean, our priorities were different as we grow and mature. You know, we have children, you know, children like priorities. We're four years old. You know, we're worried about monsters under the bed or we're worried about, you know, what's in the dark. Just like this quote says, at 14, we're in high school or at, in junior high, getting ready to be in high school. We're worried about being cool and popular and people liking us. And then at 24, we're worried about, you know, making a name for ourselves. You know, we got to get out there and, you know, prove to people that you weren't a screw-up. You know, you just graduated high school or you just graduated college and people all told you, you know what, you're really not going to make it in life. And you're trying to, you know, go out there and you're trying to prove people wrong. You're trying to make a name for yourself. At 34, you know, you're going around and you're thinking, you know what, look what I've got. Look what I've accumulated, you know. I'm on my way. And there's a lot of things that, you know, we go through at different stages of our lives. The conclusion of Jesus' words here are really simple. They're almost so simple that you don't even need to put them out in points. I mean, at the ba basic level, Jesus is saying, look, don't worry. He's going to provide for you. If God has given you a life and he's given you a body that are obviously more important than food and water and shelter and things like that, don't you think he's going to provide those other things that are even more basic than that? We see that God you know, cares for his creation from, from the lesser to the greater. We also conclude that Jesus is basically saying, look, when you worry about these things, you're doing two things. Number one, you're showing a lack of trust in God. Jesus said that, oh, you little faith. He says, you know, you don't have enough faith. You worry too much. And you worry like Gentiles worry. They're the ones who worry about this stuff. They're the ones who are always occupying your minds with all of these things about being able to survive and We'll see this in a little while, and the Gentiles, you know, they're all about, you know, which God's going to provide for us. And we're going to see that some, one Israelite king, one king of Judah, is actually going to say, hey, look, uh, which, basically, whichever, king, whichever God is going to provide for me, I'm going to worship that God. And we're going to see all the different things that he goes through. We can also conclude that fretting cannot lengthen life any more than it can put food on the table or clothes on our back. We know that. I mean, just like Jesus says. I mean, how many of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to your stature? And a lot of times, cubit also was something that was used to denote length of time, not just length in general. I mean, how many days do we add to our life by worrying about things? Rather, we know from science and from health and medicine that worrying chronically is probably going to actually result in us having fewer days. And we can just, you know, reason that from the basic reasonings. I mean, worrying is going to cause us to have possibly higher blood pressure. It's going to cause us to have all these different things that, you know, is not very healthy for our body. Like, for instance, they know that worrying all the time, having anxiety, can make the body create the negative hormone called cortisol, which basically, you know, makes the body do all types of things like release uh, more, you know, blood sugar in the body and things like that and can create all different types of problems. In fact, when I was growing up, I always remember that people saying, hey, if you worry too much, you're going to get an ulcer in your stomach. I don't know if that's something they still say, but I do remember they talk about how you're going to get an ulcer in your stomach. And obviously, worrying is also going to do other things, like you know, maybe hinder you from getting enough sleep, enough sleep that you might possibly need, something that's going to contribute to other health problems in the world. 
A nice quote I really liked. Uh, I saw this a few weeks ago, unrelated to this, but I thought that was true. And I was, you know, thinking about all the things I needed to do because I've been very busy for the past few weeks and with the start of school. And the quote basically said, Worrying does not take away tomorrow's trouble. It takes away today's peace. And I think that that was very true. Because sometimes what we're doing is, is we're worrying about possibilities of things that might happen tomorrow. I mean, sometimes a good level of worry can be okay. And I think that Jesus is discussing the type of worry that makes us come apart to where we almost fixate on it. We almost become, you know, so paralyzed in doing anything because we're just so fixed on this worry. The last thing that Jesus says is, look, I told you what not to do now. Now let me give you a solution. Let me tell you what to do. I told you not what to do, what not to do. Now let me tell you what to do. And Jesus says, instead of worrying so much, put your eyes on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this word that Jesus, and the way he's saying it, is not denoting the type of righteousness that we hear about when we maybe read the epistles of Paul. And those epistles where Paul talks about righteousness and he talks about the justification of faith. That's not exactly what Jesus was talking about in this context. But rather, the righteousness of God in looking to his will in our life. His will. Now, something interesting that Jesus said at the very beginning of this sermon that he began was in the Beatitudes. At the very end, Jesus says in Matthew, the fifth chapter, and I don't know if I gave this to Brian or not, but Matthew, the fifth chapter, I think it, I believe it's verse 11. Jesus says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why I thought this was so significant was because Jesus is talking about that same thing, that looking to God's righteousness. You know, those who thirst for righteousness' sake. And he's, he's obviously having the Old Testament prophets in mind when he's talking about this. These prophets who went around the nation of Israel, oftentimes when the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah was not on track, not fixing their eyes upon God's righteousness, and were saying things that were very unpopular. But nevertheless, they had their eyes fixed on God's will in this life. Their eyes fixed on God's righteousness. And it got me thinking about how these prophets, so much, they had to rely on God, not themselves. I mean, they had stress. We know they did. We can read all throughout the different prophets, to Daniel, to Ezekiel, to Isaiah. They all had stresses. They all were preaching unfavorable and unpopular things to people that didn't like to hear what they had to say. And this got me thinking about, you know, so much of Israel's history is caught up in stories of people trying to take things in their own hand instead of focusing on God's will, focusing on God's righteousness, and focusing on God taking care of them. What can we learn from the you know, very beginning of God calling Israel out of Egypt? Where did they go? They went to the wilderness, right? The wilderness journeys of Israel, I think, to some degree, is one of the most, you know, I think the most telling place there is an entire body of scripture that we have about relying on God. The whole story, the whole time, God's saying the same thing. Not literally, but basically the sentiment of his words. Rely on me. Look what I did for you. I brought you out of this, this, this nation that was very powerful and that enslaved you. And I did all these mighty deeds in front of you. And then what do you do? You say, hey, there's not even food out here. We're going back to Egypt. Why'd you bring us out here, Moses, so we could starve and die? That was the response that we saw Israel make to God after all of these things. God had provided for them. God had provided these miracles for them to get out of Egypt. And what do they do? They turn and say, nope, we still don't believe. We're still concerned we're going to take matters in our own hands and we're returning to Egypt. That was the sentiment that was given. So I started thinking about this, about how, you know, we even have a show out there that's called Do It Yourself, D-Y-I. Is, is it a show or is it a channel? I can't remember. But it's a, like, fix it up yourself, like it's a house show 
or a house channel. It's about, you know, like instead of going out and getting a contractor to do, you know, redo your bathroom, do it yourself. And there's different things you can do, which is a neat show, and I'm not bashing the show in any form or way, but I'm talking about just that dip, typical sentiment. You know what? I'm not going to rely on God, I'm going to do it myself. We see men of God. Men of God do that throughout the scriptures. God tells them something, okay, maybe I need to like reinterpret the, what you're talking about. Like Abraham, I mean, one of our, you know, the main people we think about, when we think about like the faith, you know, the, the, the father of faith, you know, Abraham. You know, God said, look, I'm going to give you a son. Okay, uh, well, maybe I need to uh, have my, you know, heir be this guy. He's one of my servants. And God says, no, I'm going to give one out of your own, you know, out of your own bowels. One, you're a real son for you. And he says, okay. Goes away, and what does he do? He lets his wife entice him to believe, well, look, take my handmaiden, Hagar, and have a son with her. Him, her. Okay? I'm going to do it myself. Let's look at one example of someone who wanted to do it themselves and how far it took them down. Let's go to first, or second Kings, rather, chapter 17. 16. Sorry, getting a little mixed up here. 2 Kings chapter 16, a famous king, happens to go by the name of Ahaz, maybe you've heard of him before, and he was a king of Judah, and let's just look at some background details about this king, it says that he was 20 years old when he took the throne over, now we don't know exactly the chronology, it was somewhere around 735 B.C., there's some problems with the chronology as far as dating it. They think that maybe, possibly, he actually reigned longer. Uh, maybe part of that, you know, 20 years or 16 years, rather, was whenever he reigned by himself. But maybe before that, he was a co-regent, maybe with his father. But anyway, he lived at a time that was just a few years before the northern 12 or 10 tribes there in, in, in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, was getting ready to be taken into captivity. And so what we have here is we have this individual named Ahaz that's taken over the throne in the kingdom of Judah in the south. In the north, the kingdom of Israel, they had a king by the name of Pekah, and then Syria, north of the kingdom of Israel, had a king by the name of Rezin. Okay? Now let's just read a little bit about the beginnings of Ahaz. And what the scriptures have to say. Let's read the first few verses. For 2 Kings 16 verses 1 through 4. It says, In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king. And he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God. As his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Indeed. He made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and he sacrificed the children of Israel or, and he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places, on the hills and under every green tree. So we see the description given to King Ahaz right at the beginning was that he did not walk in the ways or that he walked in the ways of the king, kings of Israel, not after his father David. Now here we have a king, that's a king over Judah, now being characterized and described as if he's a king of Israel. And we do know that there wasn't a good king in all the land of Israel, in the northern tribes. We know that the things that they got involved in, all the idolatry, and we know in the south, in the kingdom of Judah, there were good kings and then there were a few bad kings. And Ahaz happens to be one of the bad kings. But it says that he made his son pass through the fire, there in verse 3. And this is kind of an example of how he started to get involved in the different types of things that were obviously the abominations of the nations. Now what has typically been taken to refer to when it says he let his son or he made his son pass through the fire is child sacrifice. Something that went on in this day and age, in this period of the world. Typically it was associated with some sort of type of Moabite deity worship. But by this day, it had kind of, you know, went about and been adapted into many different religious cultures of the ancient Near East by this time in King Ahaz's day. We do not exactly know for sure if this is the reference that's being talked about. If it was actually child sacrifice or if it was possibly some alternative form of divination or ritual that was obviously pagan, maybe some sort of ter some type of like uh, pagan 
uh, ritual burning or singeing or some, some, something like that. We don't know, actually know. But what we do know is that Ahaz is participating in what is known as the abominations of the nations. And if we were to go to Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, we're not going to go there, you would see that one of the things that's outlined in the 18th chapter, verses 9 through 12, you just want to write that down, is the abhorrent, abhorrent practices of the nations there in the ancient land of Canaan, before the ancient Israelites came in. And we know that one of the reasons that God had came out and allowed the things to go on and allowed the children of Israel not to let any of them stand was because it was judgment and punishment upon these nations for these evil things that were taking place among them. Now it's interesting, another historical note, just to make, let you guys know, and maybe you've already known this, is that 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter, is a chapter that describes some of the same things, but just from a different angle. It's a parallel chapter of 2 Kings, the 16th chapter. And one of the things that it says in that chapter is that he did this at the valley of Ben-Hinnom. This is the south side of Jerusalem, which joined the Kidron Valley at the southeast corner of the city. And it was infamous for bell worship and other different types of things. It would be kind of, you know, bell worship being also akin to child sacrifice and all these different pagan rituals. And in the New Testament, we have Jesus often referring to this place because it had become like a garbage place. It would just be burning just nasty rubbish all the time. Like Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 22, he talks about, you know, you know, you know don't worry about what men can do to your body, but worry about, you know, what, you know, God can do, you know. And so anyway, that's where we get the word Gehenna fire. When Jesus says hell, typically he's talking about Gehenna fire. And Gehenna is from the Hebrew word Gehenna, which is related to that word, the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Okay? Something else that King Ahaz did is he erected molded images of, 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 from, from Baal. Uh, this is in Second Chronicles 28th chapter. Uh, he also sacrificed, you know, pagan sacrifices uh, at the groves, at different high places that he had erected. And so this is just kind of a description of what Ahaz was like. Obviously, he was not doing things correctly. Obviously, he had strayed from the ways and commandments of God. He was not a righteous, righteous king. He did not walk after uh, the footsteps of his father, but rather he turned to paganism instead. Now let's look at... Ahaz's problems, because that's what we're getting back to. We're not just looking at maybe some of the background of Ahaz. We want to kind of consider, you know, how does Ahaz have problems? Well, he's the king of Judah, we know, for the first place. Kings are obviously going to have stresses. But going back to those kings that were in, on the throne in the northern kingdom of Israel and in the kingdom of Syria to the north, there was four different kingdoms that we need to deal with. We kind of got to keep these straight. Number one, we got Judah in the south. That's Ahaz, Okay. In the north of Judah, we have the kingdom of Israel. Okay? That is being ruled over King Pekah at this time. North of that kingdom is Syria, being ruled by the guy by the name of King Rezin. And northeast of Syria, we have the Assyria Empire that's emerging. Okay? With a guy by the name of Tiglath-Pileser, who has come to the throne. And so what is happening here is that Assyria... They're like the ancient Near Eastern bullies in this period of time. They're coming to become this world empire. And they're taking people over left and right. And so Syria and Israel decided, hey, let's hook up and you know, form an alliance with each other. And maybe we can you know, fight against this growing Assyrian threat to the north of us. Well, what's happened is, is that a part of them coming together as this alliance to fight Assyria, they decide to attack Judah. And that's because Ahaz had refused to basically become aligned with Syria and, and Israel about a year before this. And so in history studies, they call this the Syrio-Ephraimite or Ephraimitic War. The war when Israel and Syria aligned with together pushed against the kingdom of Judah when Ahaz was on the throne. And so they're doing this because they're trying to basically take out Ahaz from being king and put another king on the throne, someone who's going to be sympathetic to the cause of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria. Okay? Someone that would join them in their cause and their fight against the growing Assyrian empire in the northeast. So 2 Kings verse 16 through, or chapter 16, verses 5 through 6 says this. It says, Then Rezin 
king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. And at that time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwell there to this day. And we can continue on and we can see the different things that took place with the ancient uh, kingdom of Israel whenever they went into Judah and took all of, you know, won a battle and took all these different people back to Samaria, which is the capital of the kingdom of Israel. And they took all these different captives. And so Ahaz's problems are pretty big. Number one, he's got Israel and Syria trying to push against him. And they're winning. They're taking parts of the kingdom of Judah. For instance, uh, Syria is going to take parts uh, of Judah, taking some of those people in that area back to Damascus there in Syria as captives. Israel is said to have killed 120,000 people in Judah in one day, including Ahaz's son, Ahaz's officer that's who over his house, and also the second in command to Ahaz's military and government. The problems didn't start here, stop here, though. Along with this, 120,000 were killed, but 200,000 from Judah were said to have been taken captive back to Samaria, or back to Israel. This is not including as well as the troubles that Judah faced with the Philistines to the west and the Edomites to the south. So Judah has some issues. Ahaz has got himself in a pickle. A lot of stress and a lot of anxieties. And the reason is told in 2 Chronicles, the 28th, verse 9. The whole reason that this took place was because God says, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. So we can see the results of Judah or the results of King Ahaz and his defilement of God's ways, defilement and disregard for God's commandments. But nevertheless, the interesting thing is, is that God had not given up on Ahaz. Because when all this was happening, a message came to this individual by the mouth of Isaiah. And Isaiah records this for us. Let's go to look at the response of Isaiah we have to ask the question, we've seen Ahaz's troubles. How's he going to respond? What's he going to do? Isaiah, the seventh chapter, picking up in verse 3, says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Remaliah, because Syria Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. And we know that just a few years after this, in 722 B.C., Assyria will come in and take over the nation or the kingdom of Israel. And so God's basically saying to Ahaz, look, I've already got plans to destroy and to judge Israel. Don't worry about this situation going on. He gives Ahaz, even in all his unrighteousness, one last chance possibly to rely on God. Would Ahaz rely on him? That's the question. Would Ahaz repent and say, okay, I'm going to take your word for it. I'm going to believe this word. The answer is in 2 Kings 16, verses 7 through 9. Instead of choosing God, Ahaz decided to put his reliance in flesh and blood. Verse 7 says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Syria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who rise up against me and Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord 
and the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried his people captive to Kerr, and killed Razun. So we can see that Ahaz decides that he's going to rely on the growing Assyrian threat. He says to himself, look, I got problems. I got Judah, or I got Israel coming against me, and they've aligned with Syria, and they're trying to push against me. They're mad I haven't, you know, aligned with them and against Assyria. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go to the big boy. I'm just going to align myself with the top dog, the ones they're trying to run from, and I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to do everything I can. He goes to Tiglath-Pileser, and he says, hey, look, man, I'm your guy. You know, I'm your vassal, pay you taxes, I'll do everything you want. And, and that's what Ahaz does. He does everything he possibly can to impress this guy, to try to get his protection. He replaces the altar of God in the fashion design of the Assyrian's pagan altar. He demotes God's altar to a place of secondary importance, uses practices, you know, starts practicing divination uh, practices. And an interesting thing, which I think is bizarre, is that uh, King Ahaz not only tries to impress Tiglath-Pileser, but he also says to himself, well, you know what, uh, Syria's God helped them out, must have, you know, the Damascus God, that's one of the gods that Syria had, you know, worshipped. And so, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 23, he even starts sacrificing to the Syrian gods. And says to himself, since the gods of the kings of Damascus helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me also. And so he's doing everything he can. He's running all over the place trying to get the favor of Tiglath-Pileser, the, the emperor of the Assyrian Empire. He's trying to sacrifice to all these random gods who he thinks is helping out the, you know, these random kingdoms who are going against him. In fact, I think one of the best quotes I ever heard about this was by an Old Testament scholar by the name of Paul House who basically says, Desperate to solve his political problems, Judah's king becomes a dedicated polytheist and hopes that some god may deliver him from his trouble. And this is what ancient Near Eastern people did. They looked to their gods. They tried to appease them. They tried to you know, do all these different things to get their favor so they would have plentiful crops, so they'd have protection. And so a lot of kings back in Israel's day would be pressured because what would happen is, is that maybe they would go into unrighteousness and they would be chastised by the real God and they would think to themselves, man... Uh, Maybe we're, you know, maybe these people that are, you know, coming in against us, maybe their gods are stronger than ours. Maybe we never cast our lot over there. And so some of the kings would start having pressure to start worshiping the gods of the nations. So some points of reflection here. Looking at King Ahaz, there's a lot we can we can look to. And a few years ago, I think I, I talked about this individual and I gave a message, and the title of that message was ungodly alliances. And that's what King Ahaz did here. He ungodly aligned himself with flesh and blood, chose the protection and to rely on this growing emperor and his empire opposed to relying on God. By taking matters into his own hands, Ahaz relied on man's ability and became just like the Gentiles. Just like Jesus talked about. The Gentiles were about these things. And what do they do? They take things in their own hands. He succumbed to the typical human nature. Fix it yourself. Don't rely on God. Don't have the peace of God, but fix it yourself. The interesting thing is that what was mentioned about King Ahaz is that he didn't walk like his father David walked. So let's go and look at a story of King David and see how he walked and how he responded to troubles. So let's go to 2 Samuel, the 15th chapter. 2 Samuel, the 15th chapter. And the interesting thing about David and about all the different heroes in the Bible that we call heroes of faith is that none of them were perfect. They all had some sort of you know, problem. They all had maybe stumbled at one point in time, but the difference is, is how they responded to those situations. Did they, carry, did they pick up? Did they take God's chastisement and say, okay, I'm going to move forward and I'm going to learn my lesson? Or did they just have a hardened heart or become hardened? And when the story we're looking at is when David flees from his own son's Absalom. Maybe you've heard this story, and I think that this is a very interesting story, especially if you have children. And even if you don't have children, I think you can kind of, you know, understand that this would have been very difficult. 
Because Absalom, one of David's sons, decides that he's going to try to stage what we would call a coup. You know, a takeover against his father David. Take over the government. And he does this in a political way, which is very interesting. Absalom is a very crafty individual. In fact, we're going to see kind of his style of politicking, because that's what he does. But he basically goes around and starts to use this demagogic method of getting the people's hearts. And we're going to see this in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. But the heart of the matter in the countryside was something that people really, really cared about was justice. They wanted their matters heard and they wanted justice to be, to be served in their case. And that's one of the functions of a king here in Israel, and also all government. But 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After this happened, this is a reference to Absalom coming back to Judah, coming back to the Jerusalem area, and kind of quasi being reconciled with David. It says, After this had happened, that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit, came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land. Of, in the land. And everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And see, this is such a typical political way of getting people. You know, he basically is saying, look, I tell you what, I just heard your case. You got a case. Unfortunately, my dad, he's just, he's not really interested. Wished I was someone who could judge over this. I'd take care of it for you. Because I care about the people. Don't, don't bow before me. Come here, buddy. You're one of me. We're all the same. You're an equal of me. I look at you like you're a human being. I'm just, we're talking men to men. I'm not a king and you're just a man. We're, we're the same. And people are like, man, this is Absalom. Man, I like him. And he really makes sense. He's a good looking guy. You know, look. Look, that guy right there, he should, he should inherit the throne. And a lot of people, you know, the same sentiment came from Absalom. What is he saying, basically? My dad doesn't care. He's busy trying to, you know, basically get a foot in the door to get people to start thinking about him being in power and not his father. By politicking, Absalom is said to have stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And verse 13 of the same chapter, David eventually will hear about it. Because Absalom had won the entire nation, or not the entire nation, a lot of people still were faithful to David, but he had won enough to where there was going to be basically a takeover of the government there in Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 13 through 14 says, Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make, make haste to depart, lest he overtake us and suddenly bring disaster upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. You know, this must have been very stressful for David and a lot of different points of conflicting emotions. I mean, we can just think about this. Mixed emotions, sadness. You're my son, he's betraying me. Look, it's my own son that's trying to come up against me. Fear, you know, scared. David's older in age at this point in time. Angry. Obviously, very betrayed feeling. But at the same time, we think about it. This was David's life. Familiar emotions. Mixed emotions, but familiar emotions. We know what David had been through. He's been through sticky situations his whole entire life. Running from Saul, his affair with Bathsheba, his problems with the Philistines. He's had his share of scares. He's had his share 
of stressful situations. The difference we want to look at, though, is how would David respond in comparison to the later king, King Ahaz? How would David respond? What would the previous journeys that he had with the God of Israel result in? What fruits would bear? All the things that he went through walking with God. And we know that he was a man after God's own heart. He, you know, he was someone who was favored over King Saul. That was the first king. And that was man's choice, King Saul. And David would, was God's choice. What would be the result of David's walk with God throughout his life? Well, his reflections on this event is captured for us in Psalm, the third chapter. Let's go there. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we'll just go there and read the first few verses. Psalm, the first, or third chapter, verse 1, rather, third. And this is what is said in Psalm, the third chapter. Picking it up in verse 1, it says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call, I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. And this is basically right in the midst of this situation that he's going through. Leaving Israel, leaving Jerusalem with some of his men, some of his people. Along the way, people are coming to him and promising, you know, we're faithful to you. Uh, we still believe that you know, you're God's choice. But I mean, just think about that. How many are my foes who rise up against me? And Absalom, the sentiment, probably in his campaign uh, chant was probably, man, David, he's old. He's over the hill. He's, you know, he's washed up. He's out of his prime. Absalom's the future, not King David. But Israel never considered that this was God's choice. But David, right here, as we see, in complete contrast to King Ahaz, instead of relying on human flesh, finally we see, and obviously this isn't the only situation we see David's righteousness, but we see the fruits of David's walk with God, the lessons that he had learned, his life all showing that he knew who God was, he had been in this situation before, God had delivered him. God had chastised him sometimes when he needed to. But as the Psalms of himself has even says, because God loved him, he chastised him. We see that God, or rather David, in complete contrast to Ahaz, learned the lesson to rely on God. And in that, we see a peace that we don't see, obviously, in King Ahaz's life. On the one hand, his life was being threatened and he wanted God's deliverance. On the other hand, the one he was fighting against was his own flesh and blood. We know that this would be very tempting to fall into a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. So these are two different individuals that we looked at today. And kind of trying to bring it back to what Jesus had to say and his focus. And thinking about the peace of God. Thinking about relying on God. I have a question. What about our life foes. What about our Absaloms that we have to run from? What about our King Resins and King Pekas? You know, there's a lot of things that people all throughout the world have to deal with that some of us never deal with. Sometimes we think about foes as just being like in war and battle, physical, but it's not always physical, much of it's spiritual. How about spiritual oppression that we have to deal with? You ever read a psalm in prayer and Think about it in terms of maybe the physical battles that are being discussed in spiritual terms. Because those are the battles, as we see, that we deal with here today. Let's think about people that might maybe just, they're spiritually oppressed or going through depression. You know, I'm thinking about like, just a few weeks ago, I, I, I saw a video about the Robin Williams story. And we all heard about his committing suicide. And, and I saw this uh, it wasn't Robin Williams, but it was an individual talking about how he interviewed Robin Williams. And I don't know if this was on camera, or maybe part of it was on camera, part of it was off. But he said that he talked to Robin Williams, and I'm paraphrasing. 
And I don't remember who the individual was. It might have been Larry King live back a few years ago when he was still on CNN. But he said something along the lines of asking Robin Williams about depression. And obviously this is what took his, took his life. And he said that Robin Williams' response, and again I'm paraphrasing, was something along the lines, imagine that you go and tell somebody that they've just won basically the world fortune, billions of dollars, the most, you know, all the wealth that you could ever imagine. And then imagine another time that same individual telling them the worst news they could ever hear, everything they, everyone they loved had just perished and died. Everything they, they, all their possessions had just been taken away. And the reaction to both news is, would have been exactly the same. This is what Robin Williams, I guess, was describing the type of deep depression that some people have to deal with. I have no idea what that's like. And I don't pretend to do. But I know that we have a creator God who does because he created us. Obviously, not everyone deals with things to that extreme and they might be a little bit different in nature. We all have different things. Sometimes they are physical. Sometimes they are just meeting ends meet, like Jesus talked about, you know, food, water, shelter. Things in our life get us down. Maybe it's our self. Maybe we have a problem with, like, self, you know, we don't feel good enough. We don't feel, you know, happy in life. You know, we're not fulfilled. And we thirst for something, but we don't know what it is. We have something missing. These are our life foes that we deal with, and we all know where they are and what they are. The question is, how do we react and we can react like David, or we can react like King Ahaz. Do we realize that walking with God is not something we just start doing, but rather is a process that begins throughout our entire life? We don't just say, I'm walking with God, and today I should have everything figured out. I should have just as much faith today as I, did, and I will in 20 years from now. Walking with God, it's a learning process. I think we can look at David's life and we can see that. It is a learning process. David had to stumble. David had to fall. But the thing is, is that we've got to learn from those stumbling. Sometimes God lets us stumble. And I'm glad he does because that's how we learn our lesson. It's through falling. You know, an interesting thing about the men and women throughout the Bible, you know, the people that you know, we, we call like the heroes of faith. You know, there's a common thing that they all have in common. And that is that they put God's will first. I think that's what Jesus was getting at. You know, put God's will first. The kingdom of God. This is what I'm here to preach to you. This is what I'm talking about. The kingdom of God. And I'm coming to show you that through me, this is possible. And what we heard in the first message. And he's talking to people that saying, basically, these things I'm describing, start living that reality now. Obviously, this isn't the real kingdom of God in the way, you know, what we see foreseen in the Bible and predicted in the Bible. But Jesus often talks about the kingdom of God coming upon you. And what he's talking about typically is when he's talking about things, when he's healing people or some of the things that he's preaching. And he's not saying that the kingdom's here and you know, the kingdom's in your mind like sometimes we see Protestant theology try to preach. But what he's basically saying that these things that are taking place that I'm doing before you in this life right now, those are the things that are characteristic of a future day, a future world where all of these cares and all of these problems have been taken away and God has wiped away every tear. No one's having depression problems. No one's killing each other anymore. We're not fighting, but we're being restored. This world's being reconciled. This world's being redone to finally fulfill what its purpose is in the righteousness of God fulfilling the earth and what that can do to this entire smorgasbord of creation. Not just the earth, but everywhere. And the interesting thing that we have to remember is, is that through that, through that message, that kingdom message, when we focus on that, when we focus on that day, we're still going to have problems. We're still going to have some things. You know, Jesus didn't say, hey, look, you shouldn't stress anymore. You don't need anxiety. Don't worry about going out and be like a bird. And when he says, you know, look at the birds of the field, he, he's not saying be like them and do nothing. Don't go and farm and don't things like that. He's not saying, don't, he's not saying be lazy, but rather he's saying, Carry on. Focus on God. Focus on His righteousness. Focus upon, just like the Lord's Prayer, your will on earth be done. 
as it is in heaven. That's what he's talking about. Live that message. Don't just preach it. Live that message. Getting a kingdom focus now will enable us to deal with our foes tomorrow. Just like King David, looking at his issues, he's able to face that problem. Why? Simple. Because of the walk he had with God. And it was a process and learning from his mistakes. So right now, when we think about it today, walk with God. Focus on his kingdom. Focus on his will in life. Focus on the things of God and his righteousness. Even though sometimes they're not popular. Just like the prophets, it wasn't popular sometimes. And then everything else will take care of itself. I believe that this is the message that Jesus was saying there in those words.